It's good to be up here again this week to continue this mini-series that we started last week going over the biblical principle of the Sabbath. Last week we were looking at what the Sabbath was for the uh, Old Testament saints, the nation of Israel. And this week we're going to look at how that transitioned into the Lord's Day worship service. And we have to remember from last week that the Sabbath command, it was a command of grace. The people, they had been forced to work day in and day out every day without any rest. And so this command to rest was a rest to be set free from that routine. It was a command to take a day off of regular work. It was a command of grace to be set free from that old routine. And how many of you, if you, if you had to work seven days a week, 18 hours a day, and your boss came to you one day and said, from now on, you have to take a day off in the week. How many of you guys are going to complain about that? How many of you are going to grumble about that? How many of you, if you walked into work tomorrow and your boss said, take a holiday, would you grumble, complain? And yet that's often what we think of when we think of the Sabbath in the Old Testament. They were relegated to do a certain thing. But it was a command of grace to be set free. It was, as I mentioned last week, it was a festival for the soul. It was a holiday for the heart. It was a cold drink in a hot desert. It was a day to find rest and solace of the soul in God as one devoted himself to the Lord, enjoying Him. But how did the Sabbath worship on Saturdays turn into the Lord's worship on Sundays. The Lord's Day worship is on the first day of the week. The Sabbath was on the seventh day of the week, biblically speaking. And how much from the Old Testament laws do we need to follow regarding the Sabbath? How much of the Mosaic law needs to instruct our consciences in the New Covenant? In order, to make a, in order to make sure we have a full orb look at this, we're going to break it down into three, uh, three points, three headings to follow this morning. The first one, in order to understand how much of the Old Testament law uh, needs to bear weight on us, we're going to examine the day of the week, the sign of the covenant, and the scope of rest. The day of the week, the sign of the covenant, and the scope of rest. And these first couple points, I'm going to try and move through uh, very, very quickly. And so if, you, if I don't give you time to get to a passage, just try to follow along, just trying to look at the time. We do want to eat lunch sometime before 3 o'clock today. So the day of the week, the day of the week changed somewhere along the lines. How long, how did the Sabbath day of worship on Saturday turn into the worship on the Lord's day on Sundays? Some claim that it was because of influence of paganism. Constantine, Emperor Constantine in 321 AD, changed the official day of worship in the Roman Empire to Sundays. And many people point back the other prominent religion in Rome at the time was Mithraism, which is worshiping the sun god. And so Sunday was the day that these people set aside to worship God. And many people point to this and say it's because of pagan roots that we worship on Sunday. We need to go back to Sabbath worship. Seventh-day Adventists, Seventh-day Baptists claim this. And while that might have been opportunistic for Constantine, 
We're going to find as we look at Scripture that we don't find our worshiping on the Lord's Day from pagan roots. We find examples in Scripture of this. Other groups claim that the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, changed the official day of worship somewhere down the line. But as we examine Scripture, we're going to find that this is not true either. But as we get into the Scriptures, part of the difficulty of looking at the New Testament for a clear distinction between Sabbath worship and Sunday worship, Lord's Day worship, is because there wasn't a clear distinction between Jewish worship and Christian worship in the very early church. The church began at Pentecost in Acts 2 in Jerusalem with a bunch of Jews. Jesus didn't claim to be starting an entirely new religion. He claimed proclaiming that he was fulfilling the law. He was fulfilling all of the Old Testament texts. He was the promised Messiah of the Jews. And so when Peter came preaching to them in Acts chapter 2, and he told them, you crucified your Messiah, many of them repented. But it wasn't like going from Hinduism to Christianity. They were singing the same hymns, singing the same psalms, reading the same scriptures. And so there wasn't a clear distinction at the beginning. And at the very beginning, Acts 2, 46-47, you have the, the early church, they were going regularly every day to the temple to worship. Going to the temple to worship and then meeting in each other's houses in the evening for worship. And so, very early on, the practice looked very similar. However, as the New Testament develops, there are some texts that indicate that the day of worship for the Christian church was the first day of the week, the Lord's day, and not the seventh day of the week on the Sabbath day. The first text is in 1 Corinthians 16.1, where Paul, he's, ta- he's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as you may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. They were to set something aside on the first day of the week, and they were to save up the money so there was no need to collect anything when Paul came. In other words, they were to have a treasury with the money so that when Paul got there, they didn't have to worry about going out and collecting it from everybody and gathering it together. It was all in a treasury ready to hand over to Paul. And this indicates that they brought their money weekly on the first day of the week as they gathered and put their money in this treasury. So that's one text indicating that the early church met on the first day of the week. The strongest example of Lord's Day worship on the first day of the week is in Acts 20 verse 7, where Paul, he's traveling back to Jerusalem and he's traveling through and he stops in Troas and he stays there seven days. And then on the first day of the week, they were all gathered together. He was preaching. He was breaking bread together. Most of you probably remember this story. This is where the the young boy fell out the third story window. But what's interesting about this passage for our purposes is Paul stayed there seven days. So he probably, he didn't get there till Monday or Tuesday. And he stayed until the following Monday. Why did Paul, he's in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem. Why did he stay seven days? Well, he stayed so he could preach And so he could fellowship with the believers there on the Lord's day, on that first day of the week. It doesn't speak of any other gathering there. And it indicates that the early church's primary gathering was on the first day of the week on Sundays. And sometime after this, after 
Luke wrote the book of Acts in the 60s, sometime between there and when John wrote the book of Revelation in the 90s, the first day of the week that Luke is referring to in Acts, somewhere down the line became the Lord's Day. To the Christians, they referred to it as the Lord's Day. In Revelation 1.10, John, he's exiled on the island of Patmos, and he says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, worshiping, probably meditating, if you had a scrap of Scripture, meditating on the Scripture, remembering the Lord. And it is on that day that Jesus revealed himself to John, and John wrote the book of Revelation. Shortly after John... There's a man by the name of Ignatius. He was a disciple of John. And in the church father's writings, right after the apostles, we see this uh, Lord's Day develop, and we see it directly tied to the day that we know now as Sunday. Ignatius, who is a disciple of John, wrote in the early 100s AD that Christians, and I quote, have come to the possession of a new hope, no longer observing the Sabbath, but living in observance of the Lord's day on which also our life has sprung up again by him and by his death, end quote. And then there's the the Didache, which is a manual for Christian worship in the first century. And it says, and I quote, but every Lord's day do ye gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanksgiving. And after having confessed your transgressions that your sacrifice be made pure. And so while this is not Scripture, this is the generation immediately following the apostles. The early church took the weekly observance of worship very seriously, much like the Jews did the Sabbath. But they worshipped on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day, not on the Sabbath. And Justin Martyr, just a few decades after Ignatius, he says that the Christian assembly gathered on the day called Sunday. And he goes on to describe an early church service, including reading of Scripture, sermon, prayer, celebration of the Lord's Supper, followed by an offering very similar to what we practice today, very similar to uh, what the, the Jews did in the synagogues. But why the change from the Sabbath to Sunday? And Justin Martyr explicitly tells us this. Travis mentioned it in the pool of baptism Justin Martyr says, and I quote, because it was the day on which Jesus Christ rose from the dead. They were celebrating Christ rising from the dead by celebrating it on the first day, the day he rose from the dead. And ever since, the Christian church has practiced, with few exceptions, the day of worship, the one in seven day of worship principle we find in the Old Testament on Sundays. And so we can be confident we stand firmly on the foundation of the apostles. They set forth in their example of gathering together to worship on the Lord's day. We celebrate the resurrection of our Lord on the first day of the week when he rose from the dead. Same day that Jesus appeared to his disciples and broke bread with them. So we can rest assured that we don't do this because of pagan roots. We don't need to go back to worshiping God on Saturdays. We can remain confident that as we worship here today on Sunday, uh, don't let that bother your conscience. We're in full agreement with the apostles, with Christ, and all the early church fathers. So the day changed, but does everything else about the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath and the Mosaic law and all the codes that go along with that, does all that still apply to us? Do we still need to abide by the Mosaic law as if the Sabbath day was changed The day was changed, but all the laws remain the same. 
And that brings us to our second point, the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant. Some would say that the day of the week has changed, but we're still obligated to follow the fourth commandment and the Sabbath with all of its regulations. I mean, how many of the other Ten Commandments do you get to set aside because we're in the New Covenant? Oh, murder? I'm a New Covenant Christian at a moment. That's okay. Stealing? Adultery? The New Covenant doesn't change any of that. And yet, with the Sabbath command, there are covenantal aspects to it that there are not with the other commandments. And we went over this a little bit last week. The fourth commandment and the observance of it was a sign. One commentator says, Israel's covenantal Sabbath has a twofold basis, creation and redemption. And Kent Hughes says the the two times that the fourth commandment was given, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, it reveals that there is a twofold meaning of the seventh day for Israel. First, the celebration of God as creator. Two, the celebration of God as redeemer. He goes on to say, The Sabbath's purpose was a grace to God's people, providing Israel with respite from their labors so they could focus on God and gratefully celebrate Him as their Creator and Redeemer. And he goes on to say, The Sabbath and its ritual observance became the preeminent sign of God's covenant with Israel. So in looking at the covenantal significance of the Sabbath command, we see more discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's not a strict continuity between the Sabbath and the Lord's day. The day changed. We as New Covenant Christians were not ever commanded in the New Covenant to keep the Sabbath. But I think Christ set up ordained new signs for the new covenant that make the Sabbath obsolete as a sign. He gave us new ordinances which make the Sabbath as a sign obsolete. The Sabbath was first a sign concerning creation. Do we have a sign or an ordinance we keep in the new covenant to celebrate God's creative power? And I think the the ordinance we just did this morning in the pool of baptism where we're celebrating people as a new creation in Christ, I think that supersedes the Sabbath as an ordinance to recognize God's creative power. Second, the Sabbath was a sign of redemption. For Israel was being set free from Egypt. And as I mentioned last week, Jesus commanded us to partake of the Lord's Supper. Do this in remembrance of me. We celebrate the Lord's table remembering what He has done for us to set us free from sin. We celebrate the Lord's redeeming work on the cross in the table of communion, in the Lord's table. So there is discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament worship. The day of worship has changed. The sign of the covenant has been superseded with greater signs that point directly to Christ. So turn with me to Colossians 2 to read a couple passages here. Colossians chapter 2. Paul mentions, or he tells the Galatians, that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. It was something that the original circumcision pointed to. It was a sign pointing to Christ. Colossians 2. uh, Let me quickly read just for... Context will begin in verse 8. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision not made without hands, but putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul mentions the circumcision of the heart being a work of Christ, something the original circumcision pointed to as a sign. The superiority of Christ over the old circumcision. And he finishes this thought in the next paragraph regarding legalism. He says, therefore, in verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So the, the food laws, the festival laws, the Sabbath laws, they were pointing to Christ. The whole of the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to Christ, is fulfilled in Christ. And so Paul tells the new covenant believer, let no one pass judgment on you regarding these things, following the strict rules concerning these things. So the regulations of the Sabbath day, they've been fulfilled in Christ. Does this mean then, as new covenant believers, all things, they're fulfilled in Christ. Uh, we have the freedom to do whatever we want on the Lord's day. You don't have to come to church. We have the freedom to do whatever we want. Well, that would be going into one ditch. The other ditch is into legalism. And that ditch is going into antinomianism, anti-law. Touting our freedom as the ultimate uh, thing to do whatever we want. Well, while the command to observe the Sabbath is not in the New Testament, we do have a very similar command in Hebrews 10, 24-25. It clearly indicates there in Hebrews 10, 24-25, and I'll just read that real quickly. Hebrews 10, 24-25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The word in this passage for meeting or gathering is episynagogue, and you can hear the word in there, synagogue, the word for synagogue. It wasn't just a casual getting together of friends. You hear a lot of people nowadays say, oh, I do church by getting together with a couple of my Christian buddies during the week. That is not what this verse is talking about, okay? This is talking about an official meeting, just like the synagogue was an official meeting place. This is talking about an official meeting of the church. 
And so while the Sabbath command is never directly reiterated in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews commands his listeners to not neglect the regular gathering together of the church. And in light of the the word, as he's probably most likely referring to the Lord's Day worship in particular. And so while we are not beholden to all of the codes of the Sabbath, we are commanded to not neglect the principle of the matter. And that's the same principle we looked at last week in Genesis 2, the one day in seven principle, setting aside one day as holy to worship the Lord. The New Testament writers do not set aside that principle. But in looking at all of this, all of these Old Testament things being superseded in Christ, Christ is superior to them, preeminent. The other thing from the Old Testament we see superseded in the New Testament is the scope of rest. The scope of rest in the Old Testament for the the Jews was week to week. Take one day off in seven. But in the New Testament, the scope of that rest has changed. So point number three is the scope of the rest has changed in the New Covenant. The most prominent discussion of Sabbath rest in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. So turn there with me if you would. Hebrews 3 begins talking about the superiority of Jesus over Moses. And as we get into chapter 4, we see it's really the superiority of the rest that Jesus offers over the rest that Moses offered in the promised land. The writer of Hebrews points to the fact that Israel did not enter rest in chapter 3 because of unbelief. They didn't trust God at His word. So they fell in the wilderness in their sin and they were unable to enter God's rest because of unbelief. The rest that God offered in the promised land was only a type or a shadow of the rest that God offers people in the New Testament and to those even in the Old Testament who would believe. It was a shadow of the eternal rest of God realized in Christ and in His sacrifice. So let me read Hebrews 4, 1 to 11. Therefore, while, en- while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as it came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest 
has also rested from his works as God did from his. So Hebrews 4 there again points us back to Genesis chapter 2. And many commentators and theologians, and Travis mentioned this a few weeks ago, there's no morning and no evening clause in Genesis chapter 2 on the seventh day. There was day one, morning and evening, day two, morning and evening, but when you get to day seven, there is no morning and evening clause. And many commentators and theologians have noted that this indicates that there is no end to the rest that God is talking about in Genesis 2-3. God's rest is an eternal rest. It is an eternal self-satisfaction, an eternal peace, an eternal soul at rest in Himself, in His works. And the book of Hebrews here confirms this. It points us back to Genesis 2. And it also says we too have the opportunity for this rest. Not just a once a week rest in the Sabbath, but a perfect eternal satisfaction in God. An eternal peace, an eternal joy, a soul at perfect and eternal rest in God and His completed works of salvation. No longer a heart burdened by the demands of the law, no longer a toil to please God and satisfy His wrath through sacrifice after sacrifice, no more wondering if your sacrifice was enough for the next time you sin to get there and to make another sacrifice. Christ has come. He has fully and totally satisfied the demands of the law and He has finished the work of salvation. He has paid the ultimate price with his perfect life and satisfied the wrath of God so that we might enter this rest. Look back at Hebrews 4, verses 1 and 2 again. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Many in Israel did not believe in the good news of the promises of God. Instead, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to go back to slavery instead of believing in God and His promises and entering the promised land, being totally free. While nearly... All of us, believers, unbelievers alike, we would say that going back to slavery is the worst idea ever. And today in our culture, this is slavery is the worst possible thing in the universe. Slavery and oppression, that's the worst thing. And so to think about this, going back to slavery, that is the worst possible idea. But unbelievers, if you don't have faith in Christ, this is exactly what you do when you come to church. You get a glimpse of the promised land, a glimpse of being set free from your sin and slavery to your sin. And then when you reject it, you go right back to your slavery. You come here, you get a glimpse of what freedom is like, and you say, no, I'd like to go back to my sin. I like my sin better. I like my slavery better. Maybe when I'm done enjoying my sin, 
I'll repent at the last minute just in time to enter the promised land. Friend, if that is you, you think you can put off forsaking your sin and believing in Christ and His sacrifice for you, you are sorely mistaken. You need to set that foolish notion aside. Those who hardened their hearts in the rebellion, God struck them down then and there or they died in the wilderness wandering, regretting their decision. If you harden your heart towards God when salvation is offered, you need to be extremely fearful. God may hand you over to your sins, harden your heart just as he did to Pharaoh. The writer of Hebrews is writing to many people like this and he says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Don't pick to go back to slavery. Embrace the freedom that Christ offers in salvation from sin. You heard these three talk in the baptismal pool this morning about their freedom in Christ. Set free from fear, from anxiety, from anger. Do you want to be set free from your sin today? Christ's offer of salvation is free. You just have to submit your life to Him. Believe in Him. Trust in Him. And you can find this perfect, eternal freedom from sin. This perfect, eternal rest from sin and slavery. So I would urge you, don't let another Sunday go by Your heart gets hardened every time you sit here and listen to God's Word preached and you do not heed it. And for those of you who believe, this is also us whenever we turn back to our sin. Romans 6, we submit ourselves to our old master. We turn back and we say, I'd rather go back to slavery for a little while, sin for a little while. We have been set free from the power of sin. That's what this rest is referring to. You don't have to submit to sin anymore. In Christ, there is no temptation that you cannot escape from trusting in Christ. Don't turn back to your sin. Don't continue to do what the Israelites did and say, we want to go back just for a little while. No, commit to remain faithful. Mortify your sin. Put it to death. In this rest in Hebrews, there's a now and then aspect to it. We see the now aspect in verse 10. It says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works. That's present tense. Has entered God's rest. And we who have believed in Christ, we have entered This rest, we have been set free from the power of Christ. No longer does sin reign over us. Not only are we set free from the power of sin, but we've been set free to serve God. That is true freedom. Freedom to serve God. We have been reconciled to God and now we have a right relationship with Him. We no longer fear judgment. We rest secure in Christ 
knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are found in him. Our sin has been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Is that not cause to give your soul rest? Our souls are at peace, they're at rest. When we understand all our sin has been dealt with, all our sin has been paid for in Christ, we enjoy that rest now. But even this present peace and rest that we enjoy, it can often be interrupted in our hearts. We'll go home today and your, ki- your kids will continue to sin against you. You'll continue to get angry at them. And this rest will seem in those moments to evaporate. But we can always return and be reminded and take comfort that we have nothing to fret about in this life. No matter what's happening in our world, no matter what's happening in our home, no matter what's happening in our country, we know that we have been made right with God. We will spend eternity with Him no matter what happens on this earth. But there's also in Hebrews a hope of future rest, or rather a perfection of the rest that we now enjoy. A day when we are not just set free from the power of sin, but a day when we will be set free from all the effects of sin. A day when God reigns over the earth perfectly. When He remakes the world anew and He extinguishes the curse and sin altogether, we will be totally set free from this curse, from the sin and our bondage that we find in this life. So Sabbath rest was all pointing towards this in the Old Testament. The rest found pointed to in the promised land, in the Sabbath, they were just shadows of what was revealed in Christ. Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. He's the creator of our rest. He's the means of our rest. He's accomplished our rest. And He is the end goal of our rest. We look to Him to find joy in Him in the end. It all points to Him. It all finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so as we look at the Old Testament Sabbath laws, they all pointed to Christ. They all find their fulfillment in Christ. So I'd like to draw our attention to just some points of application to this. Pulling all of, all of these things together. Although the day has changed, the Sabbath sign, as a sign has become obsolete, ultimate rest finds its fulfillment in Christ and the rest that we enjoy. We still do not set aside the principle of Genesis of setting one day aside in seven to, as holy to our God to worship Him, to enjoy Him. Although all the outward forms of the Sabbath worship have passed away, we still observe the heart of the fourth command or the spirit of the command. The command to set one day aside in our week to remember our Lord, holy to the Lord, to find rest, find joy, refreshment in God. Setting aside the common mundane things to focus on God And this is what we see exemplified all through the New Testament. So we don't just totally set the fourth command aside. We honor the spirit of it, though all the outward forms of it have been superseded in Christ. And so I want to focus our application of this principle in two areas. The preparation of the Lord's Day and the participation of the Lord's Day. 
If we're going to appropriately participate in worship of the Lord's Day, we need to appropriately prepare for it, just like you would prepare for some other special occasion that you were looking forward to. You wouldn't plan a vacation and then wake up that day and just drive off and do nothing in preparation. Just hope everything works. And yet that's often what we do with the Lord's Day. We don't put a lot of preparation into it. We just show, show up and we hope we learn a lot. We hope we're sanctified. We don't put a lot of thought into it. The Old Testament, Paul tells us, was written down for our instruction as examples for us. So we can take that principle. We can flesh some of those things out uh, in this regard as well. God told Israel to prepare for the Sabbath by gathering and preparing food the day before. They were to gather manna the day before. They were to boil their food, prepare their food the day before. And so we can take that same principle to understand that we need to prepare for the Lord's day. We need to prepare so we can show up in the right mindset, clear of distractions, ready to worship through singing, the listening of preaching. And this means that there may be a little bit more work for you to do on Saturdays to prepare for Sunday. This means you can't just sit around on Saturdays and take Saturday totally off. You have to prepare for Sunday. When I was in seminary, I made the decision because uh, I was a lot of this stuff was beginning to be formulated in my mind during seminary, and it became apparent to me in the middle of seminary that uh, we were not practicing this principle well, and so I made the decision that we would take a couple of hours on Saturday to make sure that the house got cleaned up, everything got ready. Uh, so Sunday morning when we went to church, we weren't walking past a mess. We weren't sitting in church worried about the pile of dishes in the sink. Our minds were clear. Our minds were free to worship on Sunday. And this meant that if we wanted to invite someone over after church on Sunday, we didn't have to worry about having a messy house. It was all taken care of. We prepared, ordered our life in a way that set aside Sunday that we didn't have to worry about those things. For a while there, we had to set clothes out on Saturday night that were going to be worn on Sunday because we had some nuclear meltdowns when certain people couldn't find shoes they wanted or the right sock. I'll admit it, it was me. I'm over it. <laughs> I've matured. Now I can pick out my clothes on Sunday morning. Getting to bed at a decent hour is the least you can do, but probably the most helpful, most practical. You can't learn a lot. You can't be sanctified a lot in the church service if you are asleep. So you just have to think through your family, think through your struggles and how you need to prepare so you can show up here on Sunday morning ready to worship. But preparing is not just practical matters. That's only one aspect uh, Thomas Watson's book on the fourth commandment, uh, on, the, on the Ten Commandments, his chapter on the fourth commandment, he spends a bulk of his time right here. Uh, so I, I just can't do it at great service, but I just want to bring the principle to your mind. We need to prepare our hearts for worship. How many times have you come to church and it's about the last song right before the sermon or maybe halfway through the sermon that you feel like your heart is warmed up and ready to worship and ready to listen. If you do some preparation beforehand, you spend Saturday night and or Sunday morning in prayer, confessing your sins, 
getting your heart warmed up and ready to worship, it will be even more joyful when you come here and your heart is ready. Reconcile relationships that have been broken. Remove any spiritual obstacle that would hinder you from freely worshiping on a Sunday morning. So this is all just preparation. Just briefly practice. How do we practice the Lord's Day? Obviously, you should come to church. And for those of you on live stream, I know that you can live stream the sermon. But part of worship, part of the Lord's Day, is the gathering together of the saints, the fellowship, the encouragement you get with speaking to people, sitting next to them, hearing them sing, you participating and encouraging one another through song. You can't do the one another's from your couch. Your soul needs to be here. Don't put the concern of your physical body over the concern of your spiritual health. You practice the Lord's Day by coming to church, by worshiping through serving one another. You can worship God as you serve in a coffee shop, as you greet people at the door, as you serve back in children's ministry, maybe missing the sermon. Practice doing all of those things with a heart of joy, a heart of worship to God, knowing that you are doing the work that is promoting God's worship. In the practice of the Lord's day, just boiling it down to this principle, I think you have the freedom to do what promotes and facilitates the worship of God and the fellowship of His people. So last week I began with a couple of misunderstandings of the Sabbath or matters of conscience. Can you go out to eat to lunch after church on a Sunday? I think if you th- look at that, that principle, that you have the freedom to do what promotes and facilitates the worship of God's people and the fellowship of His people, if that's going to facilitate fellowship, then do it. If that's going to keep your wife from having to cook and clean again, then yes, take her out to lunch. Use that principle that you can do what promotes and facilitates the worship of God and the fellowship of His people, setting aside holy time to the Lord. Use that principle and just think about what you can do. Don't make it about what you can't do. Don't just focus on what you can't do on the Lord's Day, but focus on what would best prepare you and your family for worshiping on the Lord's Day. If taking a nap Sunday afternoon helps prepare you, make you more alert for Sunday evening, then by all means, take a nap. Use that principle to think through things. It would take me hours to run through everything you guys are thinking. If you want help thinking through some of those things and how to apply that principle, I'm happy to talk to you. Real quick, I'm going to read Isaiah 58, 13 to 14. Just kind of put this in with that that principle. Isaiah 58, I would encourage you to read that whole chapter this afternoon and meditate on that. But these last couple verses, 13 and 14, God says, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord 
And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So I would encourage you, take delight in the Lord. Turn from doing whatever you want to do. Turn, upon, turn your gaze upon the Lord and delight in Him. Take pleasure in Him on this day. Just in closing, to add to this principle... The elders have an exception to the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith that we have, that many of you are familiar with. One of them is on the Sabbath, and there's on the website, on our website, this is posted. And so I just want to read to you the weight of all the elders in, in this. It says, The elders affirm the one day in seven principle as a holy day of devotion to the refreshment in God. This is the Lord's Day, Sunday, which has replaced the Old Testament Sabbath, which was Saturday, and it is holy to the Lord. The elders do not believe the law of Moses governs the Lord's Day. While the regular attendance to the Lord's Day worship is required, Hebrews 10, 24-25, the elders do not intend to bind the saints in matters of conscience or necessity. For example, military, law enforcement, emergency services. So take this principle that we've looked at. Apply it to your life. Think deeply about your uh, family and their needs. But you have the freedom to worship God on Sunday. Don't turn back to just use it for mundane things. We must... According to all of this stuff we've looked at, still set aside time as holy to the Lord. Don't waste it, but turn and delight in Him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for just your your clear direction in Scripture regarding this matter, that this is a grace for us, a joy for us, to set aside one day seven to worship you, to remember being set free from sin. It is not a burden. It is a joy. It is not something to be legalistic about, but to rejoice in. And in all the freedom we have, do all that we can to rejoice and worship you and devote ourselves to you on this day. In Jesus' name, amen.